Hello, Mike. Hello, Sarah. It's Friday, February 10th. This is the Montague Reporter Podcast. I am the guest, Mike Jackson. I'm the editor of the Montague Reporter newspaper, and I'm here with Sarah Brown Anson, the host of the Montague Reporter Podcast. Well, thanks for doing the intro. Thanks for being here. <laughs> no problem. Uh, we all do what we can. Yeah. How have you been since the last uh, last episode? Well, the days are getting longer. I was out for a walk this afternoon. It was absolutely beautiful. The leaf litter is emerging along with a trash litter on the ground. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. How about you? How are you? This, the spring milieu underfoot. Um, I'm doing pretty well. Mm. Um, yeah, this is, I don't know when listeners are going to be getting this and if, if we've turned another cor- corner into the cold, but this is uh, February 10th we're recording on and it's unseasonably warm uh, again. Mm-hmm. High 40s. Yeah. Very, very yeah. sunny. Yeah. I, yeah. I heard maybe 50, but Whoa. yeah. Picked up a, a car at the shop uh, this afternoon and, and, uh, it was nice to drive around with the windows down. Wow. Yeah, it always feels like summer once once it gets over 45. Yeah. 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 All right, let's jump into our first segment, Ask the Editor. Ask the Editor. Oh, me? <laughs> That's you, Mike. <sighs> I want to ask you about printing the newspaper. How does that happen? And... If you have time to get into this, why is having a physical printed paper so important to you when it seems like the industry is kind of going in the opposite direction? This this entire question was from a, a, a listener? No, this is my question. I would like to invite all listeners to send in their Ask the Editor questions. You can send them in via social media, whatever um, platform you like to use, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or email me, podcast at montaguereporter.org. So, sorry I had to resort to this, but it's it's my own question, to be honest. No worries. And uh, circa 2014, um, this is not an answer, but a tangent, um, we had a, a kind of like a advice column, Dear Cleo, in the Montague Reporter, and um, we, we would get, you know, letters um, for a little while each time, and then they would kind of trickle out and We'd have to restart them by, um, we would call it priming the pump, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we would, we would make one up and then send it to the person. So, and then you know once the column was in, you know a couple more would come in from readers. So yeah, you know yeah happen again. So I guess yeah priming the pump. Good question. Um, I guess I will think while I do the easy answer about the hard answer. Mm-hmm. Um, we are currently printed at the Republican in Springfield. That's been about. Uh, two and a half years now, because uh, previous to that, we were being printed at the Gazette in Northampton, and they closed that whole place down in the summer of 2020, fired everyone who was working there, and uh, yeah, it's a big bummer. Um, They were like the last place that we could find nearby uh, that used non-toxic inks, but uh, one of the nice things about the switch down to Springfield is that now we're in full color. And, you know, I, I would also just for completists say that um, from 2002 to 2012, so the first 10 years of the Montague Reporter, we were printed in Brattleboro, mm-hmm. Vermont, at the Reformer. 
and that was if anyone can remember the kind of the smaller sized format of the Montague Reporter, um, that's where that was happening. That uh, press though had already been moved to Pittsfield um, when when we were looking for a new place in 2020, so we couldn't just go back to that. I would have gone back to the smaller format actually. Mm. Kind of like that. Why? Because um, it tells the reader, uh, like, hey, buddy, uh, this is not a normal thing you're getting into. Um, something, <laughs> something a little off about this paper. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that people who, like, just find it and uh, are like, oh, yeah, uh, Garamond Headlines, Times New Roman font, this is going to be normal. And then, you know, like, on, like, the fourth or fifth page, like, find something that they're angry about and let me know. Um, but, you know, the cute little thing is like, oh, it's like a town thing. <laughs> it's like a community thing. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I think just to, if anything, just to signal, like, hey, we're cute. <laughs> mm-hmm. Watch out. It's going to be cute a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess that that, that is almost the beginning of, of the answer to, to why print. I think different people probably have different answers to that. We still do have um, readers who uh, wouldn't be able to access us if we were online only. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Wendell wasn't even really wired for internet fully up until just a couple of years ago, and they're one of our core coverage towns. So there was, you know, um, I mean, when I started, certainly, I would say Franklin County is like a little behind the rest of the state in terms of like adoption um, overall uh, digital uh, life. Mm-hmm. And um, some of that stuff has, has kind of evened out, caught up, especially, you know, in the COVID pandemic era. But you know, for me personally, and for some of our readers, uh, I just like having the item, the object, uh, printed matter. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, I think it's like nice to be able to read something that I'm not looking at an illuminated screen. Um, that's part of it. I am like a big, like phone junkie, you know, I'm like a total Twitter doom scroller or whatever, but like, I like to be able to like, you know, read uh read printed things out as well um i think it's uh you know we're now available also digitally so you know we'll put you on a list um and send you the link to the pdf and then the kind of other answer um that i would give is like i like the um the constriction that comes with the form you know if we were kind of like a free-floating uh you know we can make an article and then post the article to online uh, it's just like a different, it's a different beast than, you know, I'm trying to fill up a certain number of pages and, you know, mm-hmm. the edition each week, you know, there's like things that have, uh, you know, unity or disunity within a specific edition. And I, I really, uh, over the years have come to think of each edition as kind of a standalone thing with, with some of its own logics. And I think that some of that is also lost when pieces are just being published online that, aren't necessarily going to be encountered in relation to each other. I'll put stuff next to each other on the page on purpose sometimes, uh, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate that answer. It's very thoughtful, especially what you said about, like, Franklin County being a little bit behind in digital adoption and when thinking about, like, what format is most accessible, um, you know, there is definitely like a generational difference, but I definitely think like the printed paper is the most accessible option for a large percentage of readers. So, yeah, I mean, accessibility also like is a general term and it runs in different directions for different people. So yes. it's one, of, one of the benefits of getting into digital is that, you know, people who 
um, use assistive technologies for reading, you know, whether they're like a, a thing that reads stuff out loud, you know, it's going to be a lot easier to be doing that off of a PDF mm-hmm. um, than, than, you know, a uh, printed, printed page. Our, our print mm-hmm. is pretty small, and, you know, that is something that, you know, we'll get letters uh, um, periodically from from some of our readers who were born earlier than the other ones um, mm-hmm. about, you know, like, uh, you're just too small to read for me these mm-hmm. days, and so take me off your list, but I love mm-hmm. you, um, mm-hmm. you know, those kinds of things, and yeah, uh, mm-hmm. and, and I don't know, I mean, um, you know, I've said, you know, I'm, I'm, for, I'm 41, right, and I'm, I'm like on the younger end of, we've had this conversation a little bit on the podcast, but kind of like, uh, feel like in some ways I'm, I'm like around the youngest end of like, you know, the, the newspaper civilization. And, uh, <laughs> I really, yeah, I, I don't know what things are going to look like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, another, another decade into the Montague reporter, mm. uh, we may just find that the constraints are too arbitrary. <laughs> well, thinking about our ages, I'm, um, 32. I was born in 1990, so I'll be 33 this year. And I feel like I'm on the younger side of the newspaper generation where like a newspaper was an important part of my life. But like I've said before, like I'm even younger than average for a newspaper reader. <laughs> and, you know, some stuff comes back around arbitrarily. You mm-hmm. know, I think that uh, there's a certain cottage core aesthetic to, you know, getting your, your local uh um, print newspaper, especially maybe delivered by, by one of your neighbors mm-hmm. uh, each week. And, you know, some people are really into it. Is it. One thing that's really funny is like how how some of our readers just really appreciate how anomalous the whole thing is. And then yeah. um, some are just like, why didn't you cover this thing that I'm interested in? Have you been getting some <laughs> critical letters lately? <laughs> uh, no, no, but you know, I, I think we're there's a lot going on yeah. in our communities these days, and I think it's like we always feel very conscious of of how limited our capacity is to mm. have people running around to to all of them. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of news, should we dive into the topics? Yeah, let's do some topic diving it's been a few weeks since we recorded so we've got a few editions out do you want to start with the news about the international paper mill complex in irving sure thing um i'm not super expert on this topic you know Mm. i've been here as the editor and it's like you know when it hits the irving select board then the reporters get it and give it to me and you know i've so i've kind of been watching it some over the years, especially the last year, and uh, when the news comes through, you know, I'll try to bump it up some because it's broadly relevant. This is, uh, you know, right over the border from Miller's Falls in, in Irving. Um, it's just really, you know, one of these large local abandoned paper mills that everyone is dealing with right now. Mm-hmm. It's right next to the Miller's River and very close to Route 2. I would drive past it. Um, getting on Route 2 east uh, from, I used to live in Lake Pleasant, so, and I would Mm. always be like, hmm, what's the deal with that old, like, building? Um, (laughs) And now I'm just kind of catching up. Yeah, I'm someone who takes the little shortcut through Paper Mill Road that might not be a shortcut, and I'll do it both ways, too. Like, Mm. if I'm 
coming west off i think it's you know this is like the add thing maybe but like i just like want to not be on route two anymore mm-hmm. by the time i get to that point so mm-hmm. you know i'll coming coming west um get, get off the highway at that point and yeah drive down there big old facility that's just been been closed for a long time and mm-hmm. Um, the town has been trying to market it for a long time to a developer. Yeah, I looked at the town of Irving website. They have a page on the um, international paper mill complex because they've been they've owned it for so long. It said they've owned it for over two decades, mm-hmm. um, and they've just been putting in so much work to um, you know try to clean up the buildings and. They did a request for interest two years ago, and then last year they did a request for proposals, and um, it seems like they've really been trying, but it's come to um, the point where it's kind of a crossroads for this building complex. Right. And it sounds like one of the real precipitating factors in terms of the timeline is is, uh, worries that they won't be able to keep that building insured and Mm -hmm. you know it's like if you've got a fun interesting kind of death trappy building like that and can't cover it then I mean it's yeah the town would be liable if anyone um, you know breaks and slips and falls Um, and yeah so they're they just officially turned a corner and said tear it down mm-hmm. and that's you know that, that's not there's still some some steps before that decision the done deal but this mm-hmm. is uh the news as it hit us on in our february 2nd edition um was basically you know uh the select board the finance committee and i guess the capital planning committee were were meeting doing budget stuff for next year um, and they officially uh, voted, or the select board and, and FinCom voted uh, to recommend spending money to, to tear it down. Mm-hmm. My understanding from the article was that the town meeting will still need to approve that funding when the town meeting happens, um, I guess, in May of 2023, so in a few months. Yep. But, I mean, if anyone has, like, been looking to buy bricks, um, you know, at this point we've got, like, first the Farron Hospital in Montague City, I guess this year, it kind of sounds like, um, for demolition, and uh, this and the Strathmore and and Turner's, and I guess the Farron and the Strathmore, both of those I've heard, you know, they're talking about um, grinding up the the brick to to make fill, so, but, you know, I bet... Uh, <laughs> I bet if folks want and are attentive, yeah, they can they can uh, talk to some some contractors to arrange for purchase of some bricks on discount. And part part of why that's kind of been bouncing around, uh, you know, my my head is is just uh, this week. Uh, you know, we put together this little like it was like a ten years ago column, but right now I'm doing like ten, twenty, and one hundred fifty years ago. Yes, I saw that. <laughs> Yeah, and this week's 150 years ago was like, you know, one of the local brickyards was uh, building up wood um, for the next season because they're going to, like, double their brick making. And so, yeah, I mean, 1873, you know, that kind of tracks with when when they were putting all of these buildings mm-hmm. locally together and making mm-hmm. all the bricks to do that. Um, yeah. I've got to admit, I have no idea how bricks are made. 
Well, I think a lot of them uh, locally were made largely using using uh, clay from the Connecticut River. Wow. There were someone out there listening knows the right answer, but you know, I want to <laughs> say like four different brickyards around uh, mm-hmm. different times, just in between Turner's and and Montague City. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, they'd be typically near a rail line and uh, typically near, you know, a source of clay. But, yeah, just kind of put them together, I I guess, with other stuff, too. I'm really, you know, (laughs) making it up based on very minimal information. If any of our listeners know how to make bricks out of of river clay, uh, please let us know. I sometimes think about, like, when people, you know, archaeologists are digging around, you know, what they're going to... When they come across, like, okay, well, then this level is, like, it looks like they ground up some kind of, <laughs> you know, like trying trying to figure out backwards, like, what, what happened um, mm. with, with some of the the material that came from the river and then, you know, was, was like, baked into bricks uh, for, you know, 150-odd years and then ground back up and used to fill in the, the foundations. Well, not many people think about, like, archaeologists in thousands of years <laughs> we, we should be I think uh, everyone should be okay maybe it's always just to distract myself from from the current week's uh, newspaper <laughs> the next topic i really like it because it's uh basic infrastructure topic and i feel like we both enjoy talking about that kind of thing it's about combined sewer overflow and abatement of combined sewer overflow and it's kind of an analysis piece that jeff singleton wrote but i saw that you contributed reporting so i thought it'd be good to talk about yeah it was really informative and Yeah, I learned that raw sewage used to regularly flow into the Connecticut River, which, um, of course, I should have known anyway. But, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, I mean, originally, sewers were just the things that moved things from the households into the rivers. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was like that for a surprisingly long time. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. there were, you know, sewer plants. There was treatment before the Clean Water Act, but sometimes not a lot of it. And, you know, we have um, legacies still of that era. Um, one of the things that I was surprised about is that there are only something like 700 um, municipalities that have combined sewers in the country. Because uh, mm. it made me realize that they really are concentrated in the Northeast. There's like mm-hmm. 60 in like, you know, the Connecticut River like in between Mass and, and Connecticut, I believe. So. Whoa. It's kind of a polluted river then. It was um, certainly, uh, you know, polluted. And people have been working for decades to, to change that. And mm-hmm. one of the, the things in terms of point source mitigation is the combined sewer overflow outfalls. Um, so... These are like basically uh, storm drains, you know, in the when there's a big rain and, and you know, it washes through the little grates in the street into, into one thing. You know, those things are connected with the sanitary sewers um, in a lot of, of municipalities still, if they're old enough, and have been often partially but not totally rerouted to be separate. And so when there's like a huge rain event, 
the you know design capacity of the wastewater treatment plants like you know isn't like oh yeah we can suddenly take like 15 times as much influent you know or like 30 times as much influent it's just like some of the liquid goes still through you know the storm drain system into the river and that hmm. is like a point where uh yeah residential sewage um was going into the river and you know they've just been working over the years to really reduce that so uh jeff's piece what's the cso and why is it so expensive (laughs) (laughs) so it seems like the the combined sewer overflow is expensive because the town gets fined for if it happens but then also that's not what's expensive the the abatement the preventing it is expensive right so there's been some big projects and i mean i I will say about the process uh, with this one deadline was kind of approaching and Jeff's research was starting to sprawl out a little bit and we had a a moment between the writer and the editor where he was like I don't know if I can do this and I was like Jeff just do it (laughs) and we just made the decision to you know jump over a bunch of years that were actually also pertinent and interesting Mm -hmm. um and you know it was a longer article anyway so and I've gotten other good feedback on this too so I think we made the right decision but um Jeff the day after the paper came out, you know, was going through town reports and I think uh, found a lot more information. And, you know, there might be a, another article down the road a little bit oh, wow. to fill in some of that other history because it was very interesting also, it turned mm-hmm. out. Here in Turner's, there was a huge project from 2000, basically five to 2009 to alter the CSO system so that there were less, quote-unquote, CSO events, right? Less uh, sewage getting kind of cross-dumped out into the river. And, um, you know, one of the good things is, you know, it looks like that was, like, largely a pretty successful project. Um, There's still work to be done, certainly, but um, a lot less of it is going in the river these days. That's great. Yeah, um, I saw there were some statistics in the article um, where it looks like, you know, it's been reduced 97 and 98%. Or something like that. Yeah, or ni- ninety-seven and, and eighty something. But yeah, oh, there, there's two. Whoops. I mean, significantly. Um, and I think might not have between the two of them initially hit the initial targets of that big project. But um, yeah, it's been a, an ongoing thing. And part of the hook for this um, article was actually a pretty small expense, uh, which was they're going to set up a platform online for uh if you want to know when these uh events happen where the town is discharging through its cso outfalls into the river you can put your your email address into a thing and get sent that data when it happens which i think Mm -hmm. a lot of us are going to be happy about me because a i help put out newspaper but also b like i hang out at the river Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh it's great for people to know, like, hey, like, that was, like, dumping yesterday. Mm, yeah, might not want to go in the water and swallow it. Yeah, I mean, it's a nice little spot, actually, down by the, the you know, in the bypass stretch of the river. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's like, that. that is where, for years and years, I mean, when they first built the sewer in Turner's Falls, that's where the actual sewage was, was dumping, you know, mm-hmm. from early uh, 1870s through to, sounds like, like, the late 1940s. That seems very late. Right. <laughs> our, our current wastewater plant was built in, in 1963. Right. And I think it's like a 
this is the follow-up uh you know uh article to be written is like so what were we doing before 1963 in terms mm -hmm. of any kind of like remediation mm -hmm. settling filtering um stuff before then and also these two stories are not that disconnected you know like a lot of those original sewers were actually just brick yeah there's a stormwater drain right in front of my house which is a really old-fashioned stormwater drain okay this is in greenfield so maybe the planning and infrastructure stories are slightly different but you know yeah there's this smaller stormwater drain um it's lined with brick and interestingly it drains into graves brook which was the topic of a january column by gary sanderson yeah 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 i saw that a member of your household had uh, <laughs> also been doing a lot of research on graves brook yeah and uh gary uh beat him to the punch on publication <laughs> yeah but i'm pretty sure he was happy about that so you know he could check that off of his uh mental list anyway thanks jeff for writing about combined sewer overflow it's it's a very important topic and i don't think many people write about it so but it's also you know all, all of this infrastructure was built in the 19th century mm. locally mm -hmm. um and you know while we'd like to be able to keep the buildings you know going i think most people would prefer to see reuse if it's you know feasible to tearing these structures down we can't really we're not yet in a position to just throw out the sewer system um mm. so it's like a it does have to be uh, fixed and modified and fixed and modified over the years. Yeah. Then I guess the other thing that's happening this year is that uh, the town's adding a position to the highway department just to be someone who's largely in charge of the, the sewers. Um, we got different departments here. You know, the wastewater department is responsible for their plant and for all the pump stations around, but the actual sewers to get from one place to another have fallen under the jurisdiction of the highway department. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they're trying to get another staff member on, and I guess it's in, in the budget for next year going forward. Uh, there's a bun bunch of growth in the public sector in our town right now. Mm -hmm. Cool. Do you have a non sequitur, Mike? My, mine is kind of, you know, I, I want to talk about... Um, We've had several articles and probably we'll have some more about um, this big Smithsonian exhibit that's at the Discovery Center this month. There's a lot of ink being spilled <laughs> in our pages and elsewhere about this. And, you know, it's either really exciting or, you know, kind of like, is is this all kind of thing? Um I would encourage people to go check that out at the Discovery Center while it's here. You know, it's a it's an interesting little exhibit, and there's a lot of just asking questions. And I think that a lot of the questions that are in there are questions that uh, we at the Montague Reporter are are always interested in delving into. Also, um, like, what's the rural identity? What's the deal? Um, how do towns? Question mark. You know, things like that. And um, you know, uh, go down, um, have your thoughts provoked, uh, maybe learn a couple things. Um, but you know, a lot of the, I think real excitement about it is that, you know, it kind of provides this container for a bunch of, uh, groups working together to do 
things together around these themes. And so, you know, they've got a, um, will probably have already happened by the time you're listening to this, dear listeners, but, you know, kickoff event this coming weekend at the Shea, um, and a whole just schedule of like related, related stuff. So, um, yeah, I guess I just kind of want to like plug that that's happening. Um, one of my favorite things has been, you know, up and down the Ave here in Turner's, a bunch of the businesses have um these cool pictures in the windows uh of the buildings from earlier oh wow that's cool so like this is what this building looked like in like 1905 or something like that and with like a old photo yeah yeah totally and those are just really cool because you know you're like standing right in front of it it's a little bit like i kind of like if i was one of those buildings it'd be like am i like wearing a t-shirt with like like a picture of myself as a baby on it or something (laughs) but yeah yeah it is it is like a cool like interactive thing because like then you're standing on a place but then you're also standing in time uh so Mm. shout out to everyone who's been putting in the work to pull that stuff together um it is cool and you know uh uh that exhibit's not going to too many places so it's uh, i suppose an honor um that it is here in our town yeah i'm excited to check it out uh i've been a little bit in like winter hibernation mode but i think it'll be there for at least another couple weeks so i'll go check it out before it disappears yeah one of the tie-ins though i will say is that on february 19th which is a sunday at 4 p.m our own Nina Rossi uh, is having a reception at the Rendezvous um, for her uh, show that's up at the Rendezvous. Um, that's all of the Montague Reporter A2 illustrations. It's really, really cool. Basically, it seems like um, the theme is like people at work um, in Montague and the surrounding area. Yep. Yep. I'm really happy about that series. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's like for something that like you only see one of at a time. Um, mm-hmm. I think it just has like a really cool effect to see uh, the the collection of them. Um, she picked out about fifty, mm-hmm. um, mostly just the you know the last few years, um, so that they're kind of like since she's made her most recent switches in in process, um, you know, so it, it feels like a, a unity visually um but it's really uh yeah cool project um has been for a long time one of my favorite things that that we do regularly and uh good to see her uh up on some walls and also you know that's a good if uh you're trying to run into people in the montague reporter uh contributor and listener community in real life uh, that's that's a that's a time that you can can do that dear listeners very very cool I have a non sequitur, which is actually kind of two things that connect, but this is from um, yesterday's newspaper, February 9th, 2023. I enjoyed the coverage of the planning meeting. It seems like there was a, a meeting that lasted like four hours for residents to give feedback about the town's 15-year plan um, and how the town should focus its energies on um, on development and making life better for people who live in Montague. That was an article by Annabelle Levine. I've been to a couple meetings that aren't exactly the same, but kind of similar planning type meetings in Greenfield lately. Um, and it's interesting to kind of like compare the process. 
Um, and then I noticed that the uh, looking back 10 years ago this week um, in the Montague Reporter, there was uh, reporting on a public meeting that was held about uh, the topic of Turner's Falls livability. And uh, it's just interesting, the cycle of, of planning in a small town um, and how, yeah. you know, people can give input. Yeah, you might have a rosier. <laughs> yeah, you you had titled it like um, checking off like the box of like collecting comments or something like that. Like it was in, more in, cynical. Input, like input duly harvested. Yes, uh, input so, duly harvested. Yeah, I, the, I did write that headline. You uh, yeah. have guessed correctly who wrote it. Mm, um, mm. Yeah, I mean, I feel some mixed feelings, um, and I think it's not. Uh, it's not just me for for me you know i think that there's just like uh these things are um public input that is produced from above in a certain sense yeah um there's like there's requirements okay like if you're going to be eligible for like this you know and as as the shift um you know in uh public um spending just continues to to go more and more toward um grants right federal and state grants for municipalities um you know it's like you're you're more eligible or eligible for grants if you have like if you can show that the thing you want to spend it on fits into plans um you know and there's all different categories of those things but especially plans that your local populace has like to you know help develop or approve of and like that's like um great <laughs> like in in spirit you know like that's like the um, show that this is something that like people want, um, and it's not just like you know, you as a as a um, planner, bureaucrat, professional uh, official um, are are doing uh, of your own accord. And but but it just still ends up you know, it just kind of pushes that that um, problem upstream, right? Where um, the the events um, where the the input is constituted, you know, are like okay, we're going to have a thing, we're going to ask people, and, like, I'm not, like, faulting the, the you know, the staff um, for this dynamic. I just kind of, like, when there isn't, when there isn't popular movement and mobilization, right, that's just, like, organically happening to try to express the collective will, mm -hmm. uh, which around a lot of things right now I would say there's not, typically, then, you know, it's, like, then it's focus grouping, right? You're, mm -hmm. like, trying to get people... And then you're like, oh, like, how representative are these people who, like, came, you know, like, spent four hours of their Saturday afternoon to, like, you know, sit with each other and do this because they saw it, like, in the Montague Reporter, or, like, they saw it, like, on, like, a poster, and they're like, oh, yeah, like, I, you know, it's like, you're gonna get, like, your most, like, opinionated cranks and, like, your most bored people. And so they're, like, trying to then, like, okay, how do we make this, like, more accessible? And like I, you know, I did. They they made transportation available. Um, they served food. They provided childcare. Like they're definitely like you can see the work from that end of like trying to get like a more representative. I don't want to say like cross section, you know, because like it's not even demographic. You know, it's like it's. I don't know. That's that's just me. <laughs> but I hate these things. Um, I don't fault the people who are putting them on, but I think like the whole system is like. Mm. Um, just like not ideal and sets up some strange incentives both for the input givers and the input harvesters and 
you know, I don't know a better way around it, but I do know that like I don't ever enjoy being at those things and, and usually leave like kind of feeling troubled. Troubled. Wow. Okay. Well, let's talk about this more in the future because I know you have to go soon. But this is interesting. I'm sure it'll come up again on some future episode of the podcast. Yeah. Stick a pin on that. Keep listening to our podcast. <laughs> or, I mean, even better, um, email podcast at montaguereporter.org if you are one of the people who have opinions about all of this. And I really, I mean, I'm, I'm really not faulting the people who run those things necessarily. I think it's like, I think, I just think they're weird. As always, thank you, dear listeners, for listening to the Montague Reporter podcast. Please keep doing it. I am Mike Jackson, the managing editor of the Montague Reporter, which is a newspaper that you, if you have not yet, can read and can subscribe to. Check us out at montaguereporter.org. And my name is Sarah Brown Anson. I'm the host and producer of this podcast. Stella Silbert is our podcast editor. Thank you, Stella. The music is thanks to Blue Dot Sessions. Yes, and thank you to Greenfield Community Television for technical support. We would love it if you would review this podcast or tell a friend about it or even just someone who you're trying to impress. Like, tell them. Yes, we need more listeners. Thank you.